probably very interested though just as a how all of this came about where did this whole it's okay to change your mind story came came from like I, I guess for years I've always been really interested in exploring ideas and listening to what people have to say on a variety of things and I I've always found that too often everyone just seems to think the same you know people find the group of people with whom they agree with and they get nice and comfortable and they throw ideas around with that group and that's just where they start to exist and I started to think to myself surely there's got to be more to ideas and to the way that we think about things and approach topics than this and that coupled with the idea that in, in our society, a lot of people seem to think that it's a weakness to, to be wrong. And that if you were wrong, that to admit that you were wrong is a sign of weakness. And we see it especially in the political arena. Uh, I think it was the time when George Bush was up against John Kerry in the presidential election. And John Kerry's, the biggest criticism they had of John Kerry was that he was a flip-flopper because on a couple of occasions, I can't recall what the specific uh, subject matter was, he once thought one way, and then when presented with new evidence, he changed his mind. Mm. And he became known as a flip-flopper. And mm. I thought to myself, surely this is not a good strategy, you know, this is not mm. a good strategy for us as a mm. species to have, where we penalise people for changing their mind when presented with better evidence. And so I just got this notion into my head about this catchphrase that it's it's okay to change your mind. And it just became one of these taglines that I always kept in the back of my mind when approaching discussions. And this is something that is something I ascribe to and I believe that it is okay to change my mind. And I go out there seeking experiences and conversations with people that will hopefully change my mind. And then there's also the kind of the double entendre aspect of it, that it's not only is it okay to change your opinions that we hold in our mind, but it's also a good thing for us to change our minds and evolve mm -hmm. you know, the way that our minds work and what we think we know about how our mind works. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, I think it's very important especially if you think about the rate of change and the amount of new stuff that is uh, that is coming at us in, in this point of time in, in history, like actually having a, a bit of a cultural shift around, uh, you know, having a good mechanism as a, as a people to change our mind as new evidence is coming in is, is important because I think, uh, and again, like I say, in the, in the political landscape, we perpetuate old and um, irrelevant modes of thinking way too long uh, you know because as, as the evidence is mounted we just can't get rid of those old beliefs anymore and that's got it's got a massive impact um mm. it's um yeah so no that's, that's i think cool. a, a big part of it as well is how with the ideas that we encounter during our lifetime we wrap them up in our identity and we see this a lot in our society now where people are identifying with ideas and taking that on as part of their personality. And then any criticism of those ideas is perceived as an attack mm. on the person. It's not, you're attacking my ideas, mm. or you're 
criticizing my ideas, you're attacking me personally. Mm. And this mm. is one of the areas where, you know, this is one of the reasons why it is becoming more difficult to discuss difficult and sensitive topics because mm. people have trouble, you know, differentiating between the idea that they hold mm. and their sense of self. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that's probably not, not only ideas, I think the, the, the very, I don't know if this, this is the right word, but this materialistic culture that we have, or this, this culture of self is, uh, you know, we are making the who I am and who I associate with and what I think and what I wear and where I live, we make this this, uh, this all-important thing, yeah? and, and any attack to that is, uh, you know, nowadays is, is uh, you know, met met very, you know, in a, in a very wrong way. Like, there's, there's no maturity in, in open dialogue around, uh, like, how, how should we think about lifestyles? You know, it's, it's also almost became sacrosanct. And, um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting development. I, I know that in the Western world, I, I wonder to what extent that is still in, in other cultures or if there's a bit of openness in that space or if it's a global phenomenon it, it's a good it's a good question i think the rise of social media and the internet as well has played a role in this because now everybody has an outlet to express the the vast realm of ideas and opinions that they hold whereas before that wasn't available to us and it would be really interesting to be able to take a step back in time and to just go into, be out on the street a hundred years ago and have conversations with people and see how attached were people to ideas then. You know, if you were to present them with new information, did they see it? Did, did they approach it in the same way that we approach it now? It's very difficult for us to get a handle on how much we've changed as individuals because... Mm. Looking back in history, all we have is, you know, the, the words that have survived in print and books. And to a certain extent, they're not always as reflective of the people in society as, you know, as social media is now. We, we have a much better data set yeah. to assess people's opinions and what they think about things, whereas a from 100 years ago, we just get some very condensed sets of ideas, but we don't know what the man on, and woman on the street really were thinking at those times. Yeah, but I, I wonder if um, you know if religion was not the the version of what we have as social media today. You know, like and and that was certainly you know from so having not lived in the in the Middle Ages, but but that was certainly a, a fortress against. Uh, ideas being changed and, and thinking being changed. Um, you know, that those 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 battles were were real battles mm. uh, that you had to really fought with your life in, in in many cases. It'd be interesting to know as well what the level of conversation was like among average people a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, because we we have so much more access to information today you know, we're able to delve into subject matter that just wouldn't have been accessible for people mm. 100 years ago or a thousand years ago but maybe they weren't as obsessed with information and maybe they spoke more from you know from their own subjective experience and 
what it felt like to be human and rather than getting bogged down in you know, what we call now as facts that they just had their own set of personal facts and discussed them like i do wonder if conversation was was in any way better or worse well well i think so what's coming up for me is that like i think there's probably a good chance that that uh conversation and how people experience themselves subjectively um, would have been in the context of a much more homogenous worldview than what you have what you have today because of sort of the lack of information so the 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 worldview has evolved probably very slowly in those in those times and so people always told what they experienced within a storyline of of that you know i am um, I, I compare my, my kids now, so especially my son, 13. And if I have to compare how he views the world and how he thinks about things compared to me when I were, was a 13-year-old, um, it is at a very different level. So, okay, so, so he's in a, in a different educational setting is one thing, but, but I do think a big, a big driver is just he has got access to so much more information and and uh, richness in, in how he perceives the world. That is, you know, I wonder if the brain for, for a child today is sort of forced to, to, to piece together, you know, uh, a worldview that needs to uh, handle much more conflicts um, than, than I would have had to, to do when I was a kid. And, and probably the tax or the... The, the intellectual load on forming that worldview is so is so much that by asking people to change their mind when they've invested that much energy in building this complex worldview is probably I wonder if this is just a, a reaction we are seeing against against the people not wanting to do the work because it's because people are lazy. People are that that might be a bit harsh on people, but yes, we are we are we are lazy. We we do strive to conserve energy as much as possible and to take shortcuts. That's proven to be a good a good strategy for us. But going back to what you said a second a second ago about how in times past the set of ideas was much more uniform and homogenous. Did people have as much to talk about then? If everyone agreed. You know, if everyone was more likely to be thinking along the same lines, did people feel the need to express what they were thinking to other people in the same way that nowadays everyone seems to everyone seems to have an opinion on something, and everyone seems to be, you know, picking a fight about oh such and such a thing is wrong or that person's wrong or this person is more right or less right. In times past, would everyone just have ah? Oh, God is the one. God knows it all. We just have to accept God's word. What's the point of even talking about mm. it? String is the time to sow. You know, that, that's, oh, I, I mean, my, intuitively it feel like compared to today, um, yes, the, the topic list was maybe smaller, which, which I think makes sense. But I think the, uh, you know, like, the amount of connection that people would have wanted would have, I think, is a uh, is a pretty constant uh, constant in the species, and that's why I, I think probably in the past where you know people put a lot more effort or, or cognitive cognitive planning into things like ritual and you know like 
festivals and making making the spaces a, a, around them uh, beautiful. Like like I, I was very struck. Um, you know, just came back from Europe and like it is. You look at those buildings and and compared to how we are how we are building today, like pe people had people just had a lot of time to to spend on. On, on an insane amount of detail and over long periods of time um, that we don't that we don't do today you know sort of today everything is is you know even large projects that we build are sort of has got a 40 year shelf life you know no one no one thinks about building a cathedral over the next 200 years anymore and I wonder if that's a if that's a, a direct inverse correlation you know like you know now we have so much to deal with so that we deal with everything in much shorter increments, whereas back then they had less to deal with. They spend the same amount of energy in, in doing that over longer stretches or more intense. I, I think so, and I think the same kind of idea would apply to, to communication at that time as well. When we think of the art, the, the, the art of correspondence that we seem to be, to be losing. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, pens... Pens didn't exist, you know, ink was in short supply, paper was a relatively expensive mm. commodity and not something that you were just uh, wasting by any stretch of imagination. And I imagine that if you had something to say before you said it, you'd probably give it a lot more thought before you'd sit down to correspond with that person that you were on and given that you were only going to get to correspond with them at most whatever amount of time it took to deliver that letter, which in some cases could be weeks, if mm -hmm. even months, plus the return time between correspondence. So that gave people a lot of time, that would have given people a lot of time to think about what it is they're going to say. And when we, when we spend more time thinking about it, we would probably come to, you know, to better better basis of, of thinking and that our ideas might actually be more, more coherent. Whereas now, because we're bombarded with so much information, it can be, we could tell people something, we could say, fact A is the truth. And someone will accept that and they'll communicate that to someone else. And two minutes later, they could be presented with a piece of information that goes counter to that. Yeah. So, but, okay. So that that raises two two interesting questions for me. So, so what you've just said, uh, you know, that if if you had that long long lead time in communicating thinking, you would probably think caref more carefully about what you want to say. I, I I think that is true, but I don't think that is necessarily. Um, it would be better quality thinking. You know, I I think I think the one thing that is probably uh, not changed much over the over the years of our species, and I, I think it's, I, I suspect is hardwired some way, like the confirmation bias is a big bias that, that, that all, all humans share. So you, you would probably have spent a lot more time uh, thinking about, you know, how do you make your current health belief system even more stronger? You know, you, you probably wouldn't have challenged yourself to it, it wouldn't have necessarily been critical thinking, yeah. But then on the second part, if, if that is true, you know, the second question that I had is, um, I wonder, given then 
the change in the nature of communication and the nature of speed is um, it feels to me like we are sort of forced that the average person today probably does change their mind more than the average person would have had in the past um, it is just a question as do they change their minds on the things that is of real consequence for civilization like it feels to me like there's still a lot of old beliefs that that still follow that sort of long-range slow thinking style um, on almost every topic in society today that is really important and yeah we change our minds very quickly on the style of dress or the kind of food we like yeah like the the inconsequential things we are so we're using our energy to change our minds on on very flippant things um, because there's sort of social pressure for that but we've lost the art of well, I don't even know if we, if we ever had it but but there's certainly a lack in 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 changing some of these longer held beliefs that is sort of a, a big con construct of society well what do you think are examples of these long like these beliefs that have a, a serious amount of inertia in our society at the moment yeah. and 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 still actually drive consequence for us yeah yeah so so i i think i think there's um probably the, the biggest one is is this newtonian newtonian view that uh you know we are in a limited we are in a limited universe and there is not enough um so that we you know so the scarcity principle sort of drives uh just about every single major aspect of, of our of our civil lives um yeah and and probably the the big topic of today and come, comes around uh uh you know climate change is we were we have been running out and we're close to running out of oil and you know fossil fuels like for the last 50 years there was there was always this prophecies of running out but and we are now at that world where with renewable energy we are we are we are close to a world or we could have a world where we have abundant energy as much as we as much as we want but we our legal structures our economic structures not, none of it is is uh is making that that transition willingly so so we're still dealing with it in a, in a big scarcity mindset so then that drives I think inequality of income and, and all, of, all of those sort of things is one. So let's let's drill down on this scarcity mindset. So obviously this would this is something that would have made sense at a certain point in time when we were, you know, a lot more uh, a lot more dependent on you know, things working out for us on on a short term basis in terms of we wouldn't have had uh, multiple seasons of of a harvest. We would have been operating in much smaller communi uh, communities where the you know the existential risk of things going really bad meant that you really had to look after your own first. Yep. And that would have ensured survival through through long winters and through real scarce resources. Yes. Yep. Yeah. But it's probably it's probably been a few thousand years now when we think about it really since we've had to deal with oh, I'm, I'm going to take that back maybe during the the uh, the middle ages or the, the dark 
what, what was that period? Yeah, the Dark oh, Ages. Dark yeah. Ages. You know, there might have been some some real scarcity to be dealing with. But for the last couple of hundred years, we can look around and we can we can conclusively say that there had that there has been enough energy available to meet the needs of people. Yep. But we haven't been able to make that transition from observing that into living it. Yeah. Well, I, I would say it's probably not a couple of hundred years. So, so I think it is, it is post-World War II. It really, was really the big, the big driver. So, so if, you, if you think of the, the three big existential threats to humanity for the last 70,000 years, you know, this, this comes out of um, the Homo Deus book. Um, yeah. You always had war. You always had the, somebody else will come and break and pillage your village. You always had infectious disease, of which the Black Plague was sort of the you know a big thing, and, and the stuff that happened in South America, and and then you had starvation, you know that was was always the thing. And so I think it's it's only after the Second World War, once the you know the, this it was the first time we had a truly global in, industrial military complex where people just had to, you know, get all the factories to work towards a single goal basically, and when that single goal disappeared it was the first time that I think we had this mass proliferation of of you know turning that capability into lifestyle stuff you know so that is all your big breakthroughs in medicine and yeah so so but but it is a it's a hundred years this year since the first world war um and so and so yeah so so I just think we we haven't uh, we, we haven't updated our underlying methods of civilization so the legal structure you know constitutions all of those things to to really um deal with this new reality of overabundance in, in almost every aspect we have overabundance but still we allow people to to not have enough of certain things um so yeah i would say since we harnessed the uh the power of steam during the industrial revolution at that point we, we moved into an energy-abundant yep. uh, civilization. Yep. But I, I guess, you know, coupled in with that, with the Industrial Revolution was, that that was really the time when, uh, you know, what we now call capitalism really started to take hold as well. And I think that structure has very much hindered our ability to conceive of you know, uh, other ways of distributing this energy through our society because ultimately when we analyze the economics of how our societies work it's all down to is there enough energy available for us to do what we need to do mm. and if we have the ability to harness that energy we can do anything we can put people on the moon we can send people to mars but the issue that we have is how we allocate and distribute the energy mm. and we, we, we still haven't been able to collectively wrap our heads as a species around mechanisms to distribute that energy in a way that is in air quotes fair and equitable mm. you know, we've had these competing ideologies of capitalism versus communism which gave rise to the cold war and while you know it would it would uh, appear on the surface level that capitalism clearly won that battle of ideas there, there, there remains, there remains a rising, I, I think, sense of dissatisfaction with where capitalism has 
has brought us since then. Yeah. And so, and so my my question is like, if you if you go to the if you now want to take it to the next level, because this, I mean, in my mind at least, is clearly a next level of civilization that is that is available. Is can we get there gradually by sort of continuous improvement, or do you need to have a like almost in evolutionary terms, uh, an extinction event, you know, or punctuated, punctuated equilibrium event that, that would take you to that next level. So, you know, so as you now spoke, like I just think, you know, we, we came out of, in, 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 mod, in the modern era, we came out of feudalism, the feudal e era with the French Revolution. You know, that kicked off a whole, a whole range of, a whole range of stuff. And then there was a lot of uh, modern empire building, the Second World War was another punctuation point, and, and after that, the world has, has reorganized how it uses resources. Like, can that just continue? Can can capitalism and, and the and the and the way we run the world now find its way to the to the to a place that is properly you know resting in 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 abundance, or do we need to have some sort of a an event that that forces the issue and and align everyone's interest towards a a goal that would, would sit on the other side of that event is um and do do we even know like do you have any suggestions as to what these events might look like yes so i think this i mean i don't think it will be any of these events but um but there's there's a couple of likely candidates so so nothing Nothing like an external enemy to, to solve a problem. So you know, the, the Armageddon movie case, you know, so you know, a huge a huge meteorite or something coming our way and and we have to pull all of the world's resources into solving that problem, um, you know, would be would be one. Um, and and, and, it, and it would need to sort of tax everyone beyond what is reasonable. You know, like they would need to be need to force everyone to sacrifice something practical to to get there um i, I think climate change is is potentially a, a thing now now i'm i'm a I'm, I'm not very concerned about global warming necessarily but um but i you know as a as a geologist i i do believe in in ice ages and i think you know climate change might might cause us to have a tipping point where if, if the global temperatures drop by you know five percent or something like that we will have mass starvation and, and stuff happening very quickly so that that's probably a candidate um yeah and that those are probably the I, I i don't believe we we in the territory of like a third world war i i hope we've we've moved beyond that but yeah so, something something like that something that's a proper external threat to to all of humanity uh, unless we we manage to work together something that just came to mind as you were bringing up those examples there was the effect that the, the dominant religions of our species have on shaping the way that we react and coordinate to solve these problems. T taking, taking climate change as an example, it would appear that this, the scientific consensus is pretty strong saying that there is, you know, there is increasing CO2 in the, in the global atmosphere and it is giving rise to temperature anomalies that you are going to cause situations that we will need to to reach to well we we are not even reacting to them it seems but things that will need to take some steps to mitigate some serious risk 
around things like rising sea levels, etc. But at the same time, the dominant religions of our species have a have fetishized this idea of an afterlife, where no matter what happens in this life, everything's going to be fine when you die. Mm. And when a majority of people on our planet hold an idea like that, it's going to become fairly difficult for us to really create that call to action that something needs to be done now. When religious leaders from these various religions could just very easily say, this is part of God's plan and this is just ushering in a pathway to the afterlife quicker and those who have sinned will be punished but if you have been a good a good person you will be rewarded so there's nothing for you to worry about now mm. and, and I don't think that that's necessarily a, an overt uh, actor in you know kind of causing us to not take action on this but I think at some deep level it's something that is probably preventing us from really coordinating and getting together to take action in this lifetime. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's just... What, what's that? So I would say, a, apart from um, you know, some of the stuff that you see happening in, in jihadism and you know, the Islamic State, etc., um, I, I would say most, uh, most religions are losing their, um, their zeal. As, as such, you know, but, but, but you know, and, and but you probably have to talk about where, where religion come from. So, so religion is just, in my view, anything that, 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 that necessitates belief is just a, a, a part of our working memory that we, that we reserve for shortcut thinking. Like we, we don't have answers to a lot of, a lot of issues and the, the body of knowledge that you have on the day can't answer those questions. So you set up these heuristics that that help you make sense of the world and so and so you know i would say one of the biggest uh, questions that we still have is is what is consciousness like what is what is this experience of of being me and we are you know and the previous religion you know and the afterlife is just a some sort of an answer to that because we feel in our day-to-day life there's this part of me that is eternal that is constant you know, whether I'm six years old or 60 years old, that was still me. And we know neuroscience is, is proving that that's a, that's some sort of a, that's a user illusion of your, of the computer that you are. And computer is probably not the right analogy. So, so I think we, we are seeing, you know, as new science come in, then the religion that's definitely on the rise, and it has been, again, I would say probably since the Second World War, more or less, is humanism. You know, this human rights like the the sanctity of, of a human life and and what we it, it, it's now all about the individual it is not a not anymore about the personification into a god of a people you know and so, so i think that that would that would start to erode these things and and maybe we would get to a point where um and so, so again the question is would we do there would we get there gradually in time or would it would we need to have any event to sort of force the, the, the dialogue. But um, we'll, either way, I think we'll, we'll get there where the, the dominant conversation will be what is good for humans in this life? Because the science is now, you know, mounting and, and, and you know, discounting a lot of that, that old belief stuff. So, so I think that would happen. And if you look at the young people today, you know, it's like, 
very few people are really religious fanatics um, the way that my grandparents would have been religious fanatics, you know. So, so I think we're making progress in, in that level. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope so. I, I think the, the power of religion is certainly fading in a lot of a lot of Western countries and myself being from Ireland, I've seen over the last 30 years how the influence of the Catholic Church has been has been receding. However, a lot of those ideas, they, they still hold strong. Like they still hold, we, we don't know what happens when we die. Mm -hmm. And even people who would say that they are moving away from a, a, tradi a traditional catechism as taught, taught by the, the Catholic Church, might, might still deep down believe that when they die, that there's an afterlife waiting, yep. waiting for them. And until, until we get some clarification around, around these ideas, I, I think that religions are the, the, the effect, the sort of effect that religions have had on us, those effects will still linger. Yep. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll take, a, I'll take a, an example of where those effects need to be absolutely erased if we want to have a next level conversation. So, so I haven't, uh, haven't looked at it in detail, some, some, but, you know, like the Australian Constitution, as an example, you know, still recognizes the Queen of England as the, the ruler of the land, you know? And, and the, the whole British parliamentary system recognize the king or the queen as the representative of God for the people, you know? Now, like if that is your, if that is your basic starting assumption of, of what, a, you know, what a country is and what a, how a people are governed, like, yeah, th that is very outmoded. So, so we, we, we would have to find a, that code needs to be up, updated at some stage. But, but for the most, for, for most other things, I, I think the, with, with, the, with the division of state and church, um, it was, was very effective in, I think, the legislation that, that determines how we are running society is, is, probably, is probably very unfettered from, um, you know, the influence of stuff like an afterlife and, and those sort of things. I think it is, it is very biased towards the, the experience of how a human is living on the day or... Um, which which wouldn't have been so in the Middle Ages. Like in the Middle Ages, a lot of these things would have been deliberately, you know, driven by, are you a witch? You know, you know, are, are you are you impacting the immortal soul of children? And I think that is that has sort of gone away. Yeah, you're right. The the things like constitutions and the political structures that we have are very much reflective of the here and now, but almost too much so, I would say. That whereas once upon a time there might have been the belief that you know that the monarch was was put there by God and the monarch had some sort of insight on what God's long-term plan for the people was, and we there was an ability for for nations or for monarchies to have multi-generational plans. But this is me now making stuff up essentially because I don't know what was going on mm. in the minds of these people a couple hundred years ago but whereas now our political systems are very much short-sighted and really have been dragged right into the present mm. moment and with the, 
the 24-hour news cycle, it's almost like we've gone to the complete other extreme, where we've lost the ability to, to take any sort of long-term position yeah. on things that would be good for us as a species. Now, okay, so this brings us to a, probably a, a very nice mutual topic of interest. But, but this, this, for me, is a clear sign of a, of a dying system. You know, so the, the short-termism that we're seeing in politics in the West, at least, so, so like I wouldn't say China is taking that view. I think China is taking a very long view um, because they still hold on to that emperor-style style leadership uh, in, in, a, in a big way, and which works for those people up to now, more or less, and big reforms going on. But um, like the way that the political structure is working at the moment is the, the, because the people in power uh, has to appease the people, you know, to stay in power, and the range of issues that the people have to change their mind on in, you know, in very short cycles, like it, it, it makes these people by their very political nature reactionary instead of instead of the, the long-term figures. So this I, I think I think that layer in society and um, that that thinking that for the average modern human being you could choose a representative that would accurately represent you and your views and your beliefs and how how your society should should run um, in any meaningful way is like it's not realistic anymore. That 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 would have been realistic in a in a very simple old industrial style style um, economy. Today it's just it's just too too hard. So so I think like some of the stuff like direct democracy, digital democracy, you would you would have to enable that. And I think what you will see then is the long term view of the people and how they want to see society go. You know the way that Wikipedia is a is an average view of would emerge. So, so like this vision and this and this long-term things that we are invest towards, I think, will become an emergent property of a much more connected political environment, which is which is missing. So, and so you have these guys flip-flopping the whole time in a very unhealthy way. Do you think we are close to being able to tap the the well of potential to bring forth? A, a long-term plan or a long-term vision? Do you think there is, underneath all of our day-to-day -day disagreements and ideological division, enough of a common anchor for us? Let, let's just take Australia as an example. Is there enough of a common anchor for us to take a position on what a real long-term vision for us as a, as a localised people is? I, I, I don't know, and I think asking that question towards a localized people is, in many ways, um, diminishing the the answer that you could get if you think of us as a whole people. So, if you, so if you if you think of us as a as a global people, like this, there would be there would be people in in Australia, you know, through social media and all of these virtual networks now. That is, that is that is aligned with potentially 
in their in their ideology would potentially al aligned with very few people in Australia, but could be aligned with a massive amount of people in Europe or in or in the United States, etc. So so I think uh, thinking about it in a in a localized manner is a uh, is problematic. So so the the freedom that we have to move around uh, at the moment and around the world and and what what nation states and national boundaries are doing to impede that movement, I think is a is a big barrier that we need to overcome in a in a meaningful in a meaningful way. But I do think at the global level there is a and not maybe not a single vision that is emerging, but a a set of complementary visions that is that is that is definitely forming. You know, so, and again, I'll, I'll probably start with a the UN was you know. A lot of people are, are not very positive about the UN, but it's it's at least it, it was a first. It's a, it's an ongoing narrative around what is what does it mean to be a basic human being, and and, and how do we want we you know, what is the minimum experience we want to make available for for the average human being on, on Earth. So I think there's there's a good vision emerging there. Um, you know, I think I think what what Elon Musk is doing with with space flight and wanting to do. Um, you know, making making humans multi-planetary. It's capturing the imagination of a group of people, and it causes us to to have a sort of a vision for that, which will could become more important. Um, you know, global warming or, or climate change and electric vehicles. You know, and, and automation. So, so yeah, I think so. So what what we I think the work that we have to do though is is so. This, yeah, I think this is my point. It's like I don't think we have to do a lot of work on leading people on a vision. We have got a lot more work on just removing the obstacles that would allow this collective visions to to come to bear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that that makes a lot of sense. I I, I do think the going going back to, to Elon and SpaceX and Mars and so forth. I do think ideas like that do help us put our situation into perspective. And there's so many times in our life where we get that sort of perspective outside of our own you know, confined experience and we, we start to perceive ourselves as part of the, the bigger species or we see our story as part of a bigger story that stretches over, over eons of time. But until we solve basic problems on this planet, like ensuring everybody has enough enough food to eat mm. and where people don't feel like they have to struggle for survival on a daily, weekly mm. or even monthly basis. Mm. And going back to some of those things we were talking about, uh, energy distribution, you know, there's some fundamentals that we need to agree on there. And I think it's, it's in those areas where we could probably find enough common ground across either an area like us, you know, a nation like Australia and tuning into the global yep. the global picture. Because I, I like that catchphrase of think global, act local. Because yep. ultimately we can have the biggest ideas we want for for humanity. But it all our ability to act will be confined to where we are. Yeah. And and so so what I would say though is is on that is think global, act local. And if you are surround, if you are in a locality that you are surrounded by people that doesn't allow you to act locally in the way that you want towards the global picture, 
But you know there's another place on earth where there is a local community that does that. Like, we should do more as a people to enable groups of people to come together that is like-minded. And, 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 you know, so I, I'll, I'll take your, I'll, I'll take the, you know, the, the, the thing that you've raised around, around food distribution. It's, it's probably a very basic one. Like, I, it would be a, a very heartless person that would stand up and say in public, no, a child that was born in Sudan deserves to die of hunger because they were born in Sudan. Like, I, th I think we are, we are reaching a global, um, uh, I don't know if it's a vision, but, but at least a global want. Like, I think everyone, no one on earth wants that child in Sudan to die just because they were born in Sudan of hunger. Yeah? And we also know that we have more than enough food to, to feed that child. So, so, so we, we have the, we have, I think we have a, you know, by and large, a very common um, want and a desire for how that, that should work. We have the means for, for doing that. What we can't work out is the how. Yeah. And as once we start getting into the how, you know, there's a, there's a whole heap of what I now would say old structural thinking patterns and boundaries that is stopping us from doing that in, in an effective manner. And so even though everyone, everyone, no one wants the child to die in Ethiopia or Sudan, yeah, a lot of them does go, I don't think that many die anymore, but many of them go malnutritioned because one thing is not enough. Yeah, and there is a lot of there is a lot of information uh, in the realm of of ethics around this stuff, and there is the interesting thought experiment that if you were walking down the street and if you saw a young child fall into a fall into a pool of water and was drowning, would you jump in and save the child? And most people would say, absolutely, of course I would. Then the next layer of the question is, if you were wearing a suit or a dress or some form of clothing that cost you a thousand dollars, and if you were to jump into this pool to save the child, you'd ruin the clothes, would you still jump in and save the child's life? And everyone would go, of course I would. But then there's a disconnect between that thought experiment and what people would say they would do versus the reality of the price that we put on on people's lives mm. and when, when it comes down to it we say that we would save the child's life but when it comes to us actually putting the money in our pocket and recently there's more evidence about uh, Australia's contribution to uh, overseas development aid and how we vastly overestimate what it is we think we are contributing to overseas aid, the average person thinks it's somewhere in the region of 14 to 17% of GDP, when it's actually something closer, I think something around 0.6 to 0.8 of a percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. And so there's huge disconnects between the thinking that we have on what we say we need to do and what we are actually willing to do. And how, what do you think we can do to start kind of bridging those gaps? Because that's that's where the work needs to be done. Yeah. So 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 I, I think I think any 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 middleman or any actor that is a middleman um, distorts 
what people are willing to do and what they are capable of doing. So, so I'll, I'll let, let's get. I want to take the suit example and uh, and food. So, I think actually, if you run this experiment, like if a person is sitting anywhere in the world under a tree, having a big, big plate of food, you know, on their on their lap, and a really hungry child comes past them and asks, "I haven't eaten in day in days. Would you?" Would you spare me some food? People would give probably 90% of their food to the child. Like I, I think most, you know, or, or at least some, you know, so a lot of people would do that, that direct, here's the problem and here's the means and connect that and, and off you go and it's, it's solved. It is when you have to have it's when you have to start getting that plate of food to that child through customs, through international tax treaties through all, you know, all the mechanisms that is required to, to get it, where it becomes very, um, it's very distorted, and I think it's very difficult for people to keep tabs on, on all of that and how to effect, effectively navigate that. And so, and so people do something, and then they, you know, we, we always overestimate, uh, overestimate the, you know, the good or the bad that, we, that we're actually doing in the world. Um, and so, so, so this is what I'm saying: so removing those boundaries, like getting getting rid of the amount of steps required to get just bread to hungry people. That is a big piece of, of the of the work that I think needs to happen on in society. It, 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 it's, it's not so much about working on where should we go; it's just about simplifying where we are where we are at, and and is the stuff that we have in place still still valid are we are we willing to share our bread though like do you think it's very here we sit in perth in western australia in one of the nicest places to live on the planet would would we be willing to sacrifice some of the quality of life that we hold to make make things more equally distributed across the planet do you, do you think that's something that we're actually willing to do? And, and so, so, I'll, I'll, so my, the only way that I can answer is this, in a real practical manner, like if it was a, a sort of a one-to-one -one engagement, I think absolutely. It gets very distorted when it becomes an abstract question. You know, and, and, and I think, and would we be willing to, to take on the cognitive load of solving the abstract problem? No. People are too lazy. People aren't, people aren't willing to change their mind on a whole range of trade-offs that they have to consider. You know, they are, but they will be very willing to share their bread with a child. Yeah. And, and I think there's a, there's a direct correlation between, you know, how unwilling people are to change their mind versus how, how broad and, and complex or connected the issue is that is that is under consideration surely now with the rise of our hyper connected world and you know our ability to connect into other cultures and countries that we should be able to start bridging that gap between you know my local neighbor and my global neighbor and breaking down those those barriers but there's still a lot of work that we need to do to, to really to overcome that and to get us to start thinking 
outside of our own locality and recognizing that the child that is in front of me is, or the child that isn't in front of me is equally as deserving as the child that is in front of me and that my ability to help a child that isn't in front of me might actually be greater than my ability to help a child that is right here. Mm -hmm. But that's, that, that's, that's, another, that's another one of these supply chain issues of information yeah. that we need to solve. Yeah, and, and, and I think, yeah, so, so, I, so I think stuff like, uh, you know, blockchain and, you know, Bitcoin is, is, is driving a lot of this conversation at the moment, which, you know, it is, the, the one part is the, is, the, is the technology and what the technology can do. But the, the more important thing is, and I think the more interesting conversation is, what does that technology say about, you know, if you use that as a metaphor for how we are as a, as a people is the, is, the important, is the important bit, you know. Because, you know, issues like that, you know, I am, I am per personally, I'm just as interested in the welfare of, or at least at least mentally, I'm, I'm or rationally, I'm, I'm just as interested in the welfare of the child that I don't know as to the child that I know. Yeah, that, that, that's one thing, and, and I can sort of reason my way around it. But I'm equally just as interested in making sure that the adult that I am, that can interact with the children that I know, is of the same presence of mind and, and, and think in the same way about the welfare of children as the adult that is with the kids that I don't know. So, so I think it's sort of a multi, you know, the, 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 the upgrade that I think is required is not, is not so much getting things from one part of the world to the other part of the world, but it's also upgrading the, the protocol of how we deal with decisions globally so that decisions can be made in a much more intelligent way locally everywhere than you know than, than having this import export crisis that that i think uh, drives drives a lot of the barriers well yeah you you mentioned uh, blockchain and bitcoin etc as a new a new paradigm of thinking that is starting to facilitate some of these conversations and i think it will i think it's starting to give us a, a framework to think about our ability to transact with each other in non-conventional ways, ways that don't necessarily form the old patterns of agreements between uh, you know, one person in a nation state via intermediaries. We're able to now, you know, this concept of peer-to-peer -peer transactions is it's becoming a much more prominent way of, of doing things. And it's one of these ideas that will be one of those upgrades that will facilitate what you're talking about. Mm. Well, what do you see? What do you see as ways that we could, we could kind of, I suppose, speed up this, this upgrade? Are there, are there things that we need to be talking about, or are there things that we need to be looking at that can help us with this? Yeah, I, I, th I think that the, the three, my, my favorite three topics is sort of the three big levers that I, uh, that I, that I, that I've identified. So, so I think. We need to speed up the process of automation. So, like, we, we we truly have to get to a world where human labor for human well-being is optional. Um, and it's a it's a very scary thought, but that would force 
a dialogue. And I mean, we are going to get there anyway, but we should we should speed that up uh, very very quickly. Uh, I think it's important. Distribution of income. So, like, I think something you know, like this, the conversations around universal basic income and and how we distribute at least the basic the basic wealth that is required for for people to function. Um, that needs to happen, and it's interesting. There's a there's a presidential candidate for 2020 that's run purely on the Andrew Yang, Andrew yes. Yang on the on the UBI thing. So so that I think that conversation will become more prominent. Yeah. And Scandinavian countries are doing cool things. Um, and then the third one is we need to give people more direct decision making. So so direct democracy uh, is is a thing that that will have to come. Like we. We have to give people a method for participating in civil society much more directly and, and not in this abstract way. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that there's only one country in the world that, you know, that does something in this space, you know, which is Switzerland, you know. And they seem to be doing things pretty well in yeah. this space as well. Yeah. And yeah. this is something I think we should get into in a lot more detail, but probably another time. Yeah. And we'll just wrap this up for today and thank you all very much for listening. Cool.